Mark 13, if you've been with us uh, the la- last week, uh, we were in the beginning of Mark 13. We're talking about the end times. Uh, some of you may know the fancy theological word eschatology, which is the study of final things, study of the end. Uh, these are the events regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. Specifically in, in Mark 13, we're looking at the events that happen uh, at the beginning of and during and after a period of time we call the tribulation, the tribulation period. Has anybody heard that before, the tribulation period? So some of you, yes. Some of you, I have no idea what you're talking about, Pastor. Um, let me assure you of this one thing. Uh, when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, oftentimes we think about, well, you know, Jesus uh, died for my sins. So I could go and, and he bridged the gap between me and God, and so I could be reconciled to God. And that's part of it. The gospel of Jesus Christ involves not just his virgin birth and his sinless life and not just his humiliating death on a cross carrying my sins uh, on his back so I could have his righteousness, not just his burial, not just his resurrection, all of that part of the gospel, not just his ascension to be seated at the right hand of the Father, but what's that last part of the gospel? That he is coming back. And the church at large has, has often ignored discussions of end times, things, uh, then you ignore part of the gospel. A very important part of the gospel is when Jesus left, he says, I'm coming back again. And that's still true. And their confusion is the same as a lot of people's confusion today is that uh, there was, for them at the time with Jesus in Mark 13, there was a confusion about the gap of time from when he would ascend and when he would set up his kingdom, when he would come back. Or when he would leave them, because he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go away, I'm coming back, John 14, so that we can always be together, me and you, because I love you so much. But they didn't realize that there would be, as of now, roughly a 2,000-year gap. Well, we'll study that in Daniel a bit more. That was their confusion, and it's the confusion for many people today. Uh, You'll also find out as we go through this that uh, the key to understanding so much of these end times things is not what's going on in the news in America or in China or in Russia, although those can be part of it. The key to understanding the, the world you live in is Israel. Israel is the apple of God's eye. And you'll see as we continue in Mark 13 that these are written to people who were Jewish. So we'll answer some of the questions of if that's written to people that are Jewish, where was the, where's the church during the tribulation period of time? Um, We'll talk about that, and we'll, we'll go through the prophecy in Daniel. So as we talk about end times, before I actually get into Mark 13, we're going to start at verse 14. The interesting thing to me is I did a little research yesterday while I was laying on the couch. Do you know there are, uh, on Wikipedia, 266 movies about the end of the world? And by the way, none of those have a sequel, just in case you're wondering. End of the World Part uh, (laughs) 2, 266 movies about the end of the world. I thought some of the the titles were very interesting. The titles oftentimes reveal how people think the world is going to end. Because isn't it interesting that there is this fascination and understanding that the world we live in cannot continue indefinitely the way it is. So we have this this understanding and, and fascination with the realization that things are not going to continue the way they are. That there is an end. That's important for you to know. That changes the way you live. Changes the way your family lives. Changes the way your neighbors live. So understand that there is an end. Here are some of the titles. Earliest one uh, that Wikipedia recorded was The End of the World, 1916. That's not when it was going to come. That's the day the uh, date of the movie. The day the world ended. When worlds collide. The day the earth caught fire, that one's actually pretty accurate. This is not a test. The Andromeda strain, anybody see the Andromeda strain? Some of them have to do with, you know, plagues and uh, that kind of thing. Here's one that that I thought was quite interesting. Beware the blob. You don't find that in the Bible anywhere. That's that's how they thought the world was going to end. Escape from New York. Some of you came to Palmyra because of that. (laughs) Armageddon, the rapture without warning, 
The day after tomorrow, some of you guys have seen some of these. Uh, You remember the Left Behind series? A few of them really caught my attention. One of them was, uh, was this one, Where Have All the People Gone? I thought that was an interesting, uh, interesting title. Another one, this is a more optimistic movie about the end times, was called Happy End. Okay, they're optimistic about it. But this was my favorite, uh, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. I thought, oh, isn't that, isn't that nice? Now, I haven't, again, with all of these things, I'm not endorsing these movies. And when I get to the songs, I'm not endorsing these bands. I'm just simply showing you that there's a fascination about these things. Here, here are the songs. There were too many to count. Songs about the end of the world. I remember uh, being in college when REM wrote, It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. That was their song. This one was interesting. The Beginning of the End was a song. Not, the title's not as interesting as the name of the guy who wrote it, Rob Zombie. Fire in the Sky, also subtitled, Where Are All the Scientists Now? I thought that was good. Um, here's one by, uh, by another band called Dear Future Generations, Sorry. <laughs> end of the World Party. See, some people think they're going to be partying at the end of the world. You haven't read the book of Revelation yet. But the interesting thing about the, the group that wrote that was I See Stars. And, and evidently they're falling from heaven, according to the Bible. And the final one that I thought would be a really good title for this whole, the message from Mark 13, at least the beginning of Mark 13, was it's not the end of the world, but I can see it from here. And that's where we left off in Mark 13. We talked about uh, these things, wars and rumors of wars and, and kingdoms against kingdoms and nations against nations and earthquakes and famines and troubles, that that wasn't a sign of the end, but it was an indic- indication of the beginning of the end. In other words, in other words the end is near, uh, is not yet, but I can see it from here. And we talked about the picture of a, of a woman giving birth, that once uh, she goes into labor, you time the contractions, and, and throughout the process, the, the woman has uh, labor pains that are more intense and more frequent the closer she gets to the birth of the baby. And God says, well, how am I going to explain you know, how things are going to come to an end, how this is all going to work out, to, to people that don't understand it. Well, let me use this idea of labor pains and, and a birth because people understand that stuff, and we do. So those were the beginning of sorrows. If you look back in verse 8, he says all those things are the beginning of sorrows. And then in verse 14, we're going to find ourselves in the middle of this period of time called the tribulation, which lasts seven years. And we'll talk about how I know it lasts seven years in just a minute. So this period of time called the tribulation, the word tribulation comes from the the Latin word tribulum, which was the name for the big, heavy roller with spikes on it that would roll over top of the grain and smash the grain, separating the the hard outer husk from the inner soft meat or the grain. So it speaks of pressure. So the tribulum rolling over the grain, putting pressure on it, squeezing it, painful, That's where we get the word tribulation. It's pressure, it's pain, it's difficulty. So this seven-year tribulation period is that time when God brings his forestalled judgment onto the earth after the earth has has rejected him. Those that are left have rejected him. Uh, We'll talk about where the church is at this time in just a few minutes. But understand that just like a woman giving birth, once the labor starts, medical intervention aside, can you stop that baby from coming? So God's judgment, once it begins, is inevitable that it will happen and it will culminate with the birth of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the picture. So this passage we're talking about is dealing with the events of that seven-year period called the tribulation time. Specifically, verse 14, we know to be the middle of that time. Three and a half years into that time. Verse 14 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who was on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. 
and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight, now we're not talking 747 leaving out of Richmond, heading to D.C. We're not talking about that kind of flight. Understand we're talking about fleeing, running away. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. So that's that second half. So if you take seven years and you break it in half, you've got two, three and a half year periods. The second half of that, closer to the birth, is a time of more intense pain, more intense contraction, so to speak. And it's called in the Bible, the Great Tribulation. Things are going to be really, really bad. Again, read Revelation chapter 6 through 19, and you get a picture uh, more in depth of some of the things that are being talked about. Uh, Also, there are tons of cross-references I could give you guys, but I'm going to try not to confuse this more uh, than need be. Uh, So if you want to do more studying on the end times, please do know that this is not an exhaustive study, and you are welcome to hash these things out on your own. But we're going to try to keep just to the basic text here as much as we can. So he speaks about these things, this time when things are going to happen. Verse 19 says, in those days, what days? The second half of the tribulation, where there's going to be this pressure and tribulation and difficulty on the earth, such has not been since the beginning of the creation until this time, nor ever shall be. So we can agree that the second part of that time, right before Christ comes back, is going to be a really, really hairy time on earth. I mean, you think it's been bad now. You think some of the things we've seen uh, and have happened are bad now. You ain't seen nothing yet, as they say. So there's why this, that's why there's this urgency. He says, you know, when you see this thing, the abomination of desolation, don't go back to the house. Don't go down, you know, from the roof. Just get out of there as fast as you can. Uh, we had a number of years ago, we had a barn fire. Our, our barn burnt down. We lost some animals in the fire and a lot of stuff. But, you know, when, the, when your house is on fire, you run, you get out of there to save your life. You're not worried about, you know, getting that, that new skirt you just got at the, at the store or that, that book or whatever it is that you might need. You just get yourself out of there as fast as you can to save your life. And that's what he's saying here is you're going to have to make a run for it. So don't waste your time going back for things. And look, he says, for those that are pregnant, it's going to be a challenge because you're going to have to flee carrying a baby or nursing a baby. Matthew adds, pray that your flight is not on the Sabbath, which means that it's particular to Jews. This is happening in Judea. And the Sabbath would create a real conflict for them if, if these things started happening on the, and it happened on the Sabbath day, there'd be a, a dilemma for them because on the Sabbath, they're only allowed to travel but so far. So they'd have to decide either to save their lives or to keep the Sabbath. And Jesus is telling them, hey, save your lives. Make a run for it. Well, so what is going to indicate that? Remember, they asked Jesus, what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? We've talked about wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes. Those are all terrible signs because those are things that have happened throughout history and will continue on into the tribulation time. But in verse 14, he tells us what the sign will be of these things happening. And what is it there in verse 14? When you see the abomination of desolation. Oh, well, that makes things really clear. What's an abomination of desolation? I mean, I've seen my neighbor in the morning, and that's pretty scary. Oh, this is the one spoken of by Daniel. Oh, who's Daniel? Oh, the prophet. Oh, now we know. So this thing is spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So we need to go to Daniel the prophet and see what he's talking about. Can, can we go there? Now, Daniel was writing... During the time of the, the Babylonian exile, he'd been taken into exile uh, when Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. I love it when the pieces and, and parts come together. In Daniel 9, Daniel is reading what Jeremiah wrote, the book of Jeremiah. So Daniel is reading Jeremiah that's in your Bible, and he recognizes that God had ordained 70 years for Israel to be in captivity in Babylon before he brought them back. And he starts doing the math, and he figures out 67 of those seven years, excuse 67 of those 70 years, 
has already passed. So he starts to say, wow, it's going to be like three years until we're out of Babylon and, and can be freed to go back. And so he starts to pray about his sins and the sins of their nation. And by the way, Daniel was probably about 80-some years old when he, when he wrote this. So as he's praying, Gabriel brings to him a vision. The angel Gabriel brings to him this vision. And it is Daniel 9, 24 and following is probably the most important biblical prophecy in the whole Bible. It is, some call it, the backbone of Bible prophecy because it's the prophecy that helps us understand so much about God's plan for the world. And as I said, it doesn't revolve around Russia. It doesn't revolve around China. It doesn't revolve around America. It revolves around Israel. And look what this first part of the prophecy says. Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So who's this written for? Who's, who are Daniel's people? The Israelites, the Jews. And which is their holy city? Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's the center of the universe. America's not the center of the universe. Jerusalem is the center of the universe. Center of, of God's plan for the world. And so he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So has, has everlasting righteousness already come in? I mean, are we living in everlasting righteousness right now? No, we're not. So this hasn't been fulfilled completely yet. The time frame is interesting. He says, here's the number of, Here's the amount of time determined for your people. 70 weeks. How many of your Bibles say something else besides 70 weeks? Some of your Bibles say 77s. That's actually the more accurate translation. The New King James and the King James don't do as good a job with that. It literally is 77s. So how many sevens are 77s? 70 times 7, Jesus told Peter, how many times do I have to forgive? 70 times 7. How many times is that? 490. 490. So there's 490 somethings determined. Well, a, a week is a, is a group of seven. If you have a week of eggs, how many eggs do you have? Seven eggs. If you have a week of days, how many days do you have? If you have a week of years, how many years do you have? Seven years. So if we take this not based on days, but on years, that would be 490 years. Okay, so so the first thing you have to know is God's total plan lasts, for, for, this, for this world, lasts 490 years. And for his people, all the things he just said there, 490 years. And you say, well, it's been a long time since this was written, a lot longer than 490 years. Well, hang with me. Let's see what happened. Know therefore, verse 25 says, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, okay, so that's our beginning point. That's when the 490 years started. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2. Artaxerxes Longimanus uh, gives the command to go and rebuild the, um, the, the wall under Nehemiah, right? And Ezra builds the temple, but ne Nehemiah builds the wall and, and rebuilds the city. So you can read that. We know the exact date or roughly the date of that. So from that time until, what's the next part of that? Messiah the Prince. Who's that? That's Jesus. There's going to be seven weeks. Okay, so that's how many years? 49 years. And 62 more weeks on top of that, which is another 434 years, which gives us a grand total of 483 years. Now we said the total picture is how many? 490. 490 minus 7 is 43. So from the time... Uh, whew, uh, you didn't know you were coming to math class today, did you? Look, I'm just, I didn't write it. I'm just helping explain it. From the time that they started, or that the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem, to the time that Jesus would come, would be 483 years. How's that for simplification? And guess what? As they do the math, they find out that it was 483 years. And the Jews were accountable to know that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey and they laid down the, the palm branches on Palm Sunday and they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that was the day that their Messiah, their king, 
was coming in. But it didn't end well for him, did it? So let's read what happens next. The street shall be built again, and, and the wall even in troublesome times. So Nehemiah built the wall in troublesome times. Uh, what they failed to understand and what the disciples are not understanding is that the 490 years are not all consecutive. Watch what happens next. Verse 26 says, And after the 62 weeks, remember he said there'd be seven and then 62. Well, after that 62-week period, what happens to the Messiah? He is cut off. That sounds a lot like what happened to Jesus, isn't it? And is he cut off? Why? It says, but not for himself. Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He died for mine and for yours. So the Messiah gets cut off. When Messiah gets cut off, the prophetic clock stops. Maybe some of you guys play basketball or girls. Maybe you play basketball. And you know that there's a time clock in basketball and the time clock is running. But what happens? You can take a timeout. And the timeout doesn't mean everybody freezes where they are and nobody moves. The timeout means the clock stops and now we have a huddle. And we talk about what we're going to do next and what's the plan and what's the play we're going to run. And then when we're ready, we get back on the court and we start the clock again. Now, you ask someone how long a basketball game lasts and they'll tell you, you know, the amount of time from the start to the end. But actually with timeouts, it's really more. So what we've been living in from the time of Jesus until now, we've been living in the timeout. And it's called the church age. The age where the gospel would go out to Gentiles as well. And so many people are getting saved. As many people as will come. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this has been what we call a prophetic timeout. But someday, the timeout is going to end and God will turn his attention back to Israel again. And that last remaining seven-year period will continue out and then Christ will return. Are you following me a little bit so far? So we live in this church age, the age, some call it the age of grace, although God's always been gracious, where people are getting saved and things are happening, but the prophetic clock has stopped. When will it start back up? Let's keep reading. So Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, who he? Back at verse 26, the, print, the people of the prince who is to come, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of, here it is, folks, this is where we've been driving towards. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So when Jesus says, you have to, when you see the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by Daniel, this is what he's speaking of. So what is it? What's an abomination? Usually an abomination is something that is repulsive to God, and that is oftentimes a way to explain idolatry. And desolation just means to be empty. So there is some kind of idolatry that's going to happen where? In the temple, right? Standing this abomination of of desolation, standing where he or it ought not to be in the temple, that's the sign. Now, who is that? When is that? In some ways, this was partially fulfilled. And one of the challenges with prophecy is that you have near and, and far fulfillments. Near and far fulfillments. So there are sometimes things that happen that are sort of just like what was talked about, but then there's yet a future thing as well that's to come. So in the year 167, now we're in history class. 167 BC, there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Have you heard of him? Maybe in your history class or maybe in another Bible study. Antiochus Epiphanes was a, a Seleucid king. And uh, he, taking out his aggressions on, and his, he was humiliated. And he took it out on the people he was ruling over, the Jews. And he killed thousands of them. And he went into the temple that was standing at the time. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. Now you guys know the pig to the Jew is an unclean animal. Not only that, but he set up an altar, uh, a statue to Zeus. So Zeus would be worshipped there in the, in the temple of God. And that is an example of 
the abomination of desolation. Anyone who claims to be God or is worshipped as God, where only the true and living God should be worshipped. How do I know that uh, the, speak, the part we're talking about in Mark is in the middle of that seven-year period? Because look at what happens right back here where we were just talking about. In the middle of the week, that's when this happens. In the middle of that seven-year period. So three and a half years into that seven-year period, that's when this is going to happen. So back with me to Mark, if you will. You go back to Mark. I'm going to read you one thing before we, I go back there. Now, you guys have heard of the Antichrist, right? You've heard that mentioned. Partial fulfillment, Antiochus Epiphanes, he was certainly a type of the Antichrist. Uh, many have said Ronald Reagan was an Antichrist. Uh, others have guessed Hitler was the Antichrist. And all of those maybe in, in some ways sort of partial fulfillments, but only when you have someone going to the temple and offering sacrifices there or claiming to be God, that's when you have the fulfillment of that. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes did that, but Jesus says there's still something to come. Now, maybe some of you are thinking Donald Trump is going to be the Antichrist and we're all in big trouble. I don't know. Um, but I do know this, that Daniel also tells us that whoever this Antichrist person is, he's going to make a peace treaty with the Jews. Now, you know how hard and seemingly impossible it is to get the Middle Eastern nations to agree on anything. But somehow, this Antichrist is going to look and, and come as a man of peace. He's going to bring a, 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 an agreement that's going to maybe allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. Because can we agree that right now there's no temple in Israel? It's a mosque that stands there on the Temple Mount. It's the Dome of the Rock Mosque. So somehow, the Antichrist is going to bring on this treaty so that maybe the Jews can build their temple right there next to the Dome of the Rock Mosque in the place where many believe it should be in the first place. And if he's able to do that, you know, we're talking about a charismatic leader, a military leader, a governmental leader. But then three and a half years after that agreement is made, he's going to stand himself in the temple and he's going to claim to be God and to be worshipped as God. And that's when the Jews are going to know, hey, the jig is up. This is a bad deal. And Jesus says, run for your lives. Daniel chapter 11 tells us that. And I won't make you go there now. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 also explains about the Antichrist. So, with that said, now we're back in, in the Gospel of Mark. And my clock is ticking here as well. Um, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not to be, that's the sign. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop go down to the house and so on. We read all through that. Um, the question is, if... This is all based on the Jews and for the Jews and, and regarding that period of Jewish history called the tribulation or the seven years of Jacob's trouble where God again turns his attention back to them and this time of judgment. Then where is the church during this time? Where is the church during this time? Um, that is a matter of uh, much debate. Uh, we call it the rapture of the church. And I think everybody that reads the Bible, understands and agrees that there is a rapture of the church. What's the rapture of the church? Briefly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 explains to us a time when God will, will rapture or snatch away his people from the earth. Uh, maybe you've watched the Left Behind series and you understand a little bit about that. But uh, Paul says to the Thessalonians that, um, that there's going to be this time that, that their people are going to be snatched away and, and be caught up in the clouds with Christ. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. And that's the word, you say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. And you would be right. But the word snatched away or caught up is the word harpazo in Greek, which is translated raptus in Latin, which is where we get the word rapture. And it just means to be forcefully plucked out or forcefully caught away. It's like if you were walking across the street with your child and a car was coming and you grabbed their hand and pulled them away to, to safety. That's the, that's the idea of snatching away. So people will be resurrected at that time. The dead who have died in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain, we caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. So during the tribulation time, we believe because this is a time of judgment and because we're saved, that we won't have to go through that. Now some people believe that 
that's going to happen before the tribulation. Other people, that's called pre-tribulation rapture. Some believe it's going to happen in the middle when the Antichrist is revealed. That's mid-tribulation rapture. Some people believe it's going to happen at the end of the seven years, that the church will go through the tribulation. That's called post-tribulation rapture. Some people are pan-rapturists. They believe it's just going to pan out however it pans out. If, if, you, if you, you're a mid-tribulation rapture and you see me fly up into the, to the sky, you can change your opinion. So I don't get too dogmatic about these things, but I will tell you that my, my, my feeling is because of 1 Thessalonians, because I know that we're saved by Jesus Christ, uh, not, our, all the wrath that was meant for us, for our sin, has been put on him. Therefore, Paul says, we're not subject to wrath. And if the tribulation is the time of God's wrath, we're not subject to that. So I believe the rapture will happen first. So that's what we're, the next event on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. If you're a pre-tribulation rapturist, you believe, and there's nothing that needs to happen before that. See, before the, before the abomination of desolation happens in the middle of the tribulation, there has to be a temple built. And they're working on that right now in Israel to rebuild the temple. There's a whole institute. They have everything they need to rebuild the temple. You know what they're waiting for? You know who they believe is going to rebuild their temple? The Messiah. And guess who it's going to be? It's going to be the Antichrist. Interesting, isn't it? So they'll believe him. Three and a half years in, he'll show who he really is, and then things get really bad. Verse 21 says, oh, I'm sorry, verse 20, and unless the Lord had shortened those days, the days of the, the tribulation, uh, no flesh would be saved. It's going to be that bad. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he's there, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, even those that are gods. Uh, it's not going to be possible, but know this, that if a person chases after signs and wonders, they're easy to deceive. And there are a lot of those in the church that are chasing after signs and wonders because here's what it says, read it again, at that time, and it even happens now, false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to do what? To deceive. If all you are looking for is miracles to validate the truth or about something, you are going to be easily, easily deceived. You don't use miracles. The Bible says we have the more sure word of prophecy. That's what you use. You use truth to measure accuracy and validity, not signs and wonders. Signs and wonders just exist to validate the truth of the word. Signs and wonders are supposed to follow the believer and not the believer following signs and wonders. Does that make sense? Otherwise, you can be, there's so, so much stuff out there. Don't be, don't be deceived. Uh, that will happen then. He says, but verse 23, take heed, pay attention, look, take, examine, see, I have told you all things beforehand. I mean, who else is qualified to tell you about the future other than God? He knows the end from the beginning. He calls things that are not as though they were. He wrote the book. He wrote the story. He knows every day of mine before one has even lived, they're written in a book. And if he tells me something about the future, I ought to believe it. And he's telling them this about the future so they can be smart at Jeopardy, so they can have info at parties and Bible studies. They can make sure everybody at the Bible study knows how much they know about the things that are to come. No, he tells them that so that they can be prepared. Because I, I was a, you know, I used to love G.I. Joe when I was growing up. Anybody, any other guys, G.I. Joe? And I don't want to stereotype girls, G.I. Joe. Just sure, there's, there's the G.I. Joe girl, okay. Did you have the G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip? I mean, that was the best. That was the best. So I was a big G.I. Joe fan, and then G.I. Joe came out with a cartoon. And every one of the G.I. Joe episodes had at the end like a little public service message. And, you know, G.I. Joe would come and talk to the little kid, and he'd say, now, no, don't talk to strangers. And the kid would say, oh, I didn't know. And G.I. Joe says, right, and now you do. And knowing is half the battle, right? And knowing is half the battle. Thank you. So another G.I. Joe fan. Uh, so he tells them these things. See, I've told you all these things beforehand. I love to be prepared. None of us likes to go into a situation unprepared. 
so you can know. And because you know, you can live according to what you know. Verse 24, now we've talked about the things before the tribulation, or or at the beginning of the tribulation. We've talked about the things from the middle to the end of the tribulation, just in brief. And now we have the things at the end or after the tribulation. Verse 24, in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and powers in, in the heaven will be shaken. They thought the stones in the temple were impressive and were sturdy and were solid. You want to talk about the heavens, the very heavens being shaken. How does that happen? What does that look like for the stars of heaven to fall? I have no idea. What happens to gravity? Is the gravitational pull of the earth somehow increased? I'm not a physicist. I don't know. But the the heavens are going to come crashing down. The sun is darkened, and because the sun is darkened, so will the moon be darkened. And verse 25 says, no, I'm sorry, 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. If you think the sun is bright, when you see Christ coming back, He will light up the sky. And I think it's really cool because if you've ever gone out to the theater or you go to see a play or a show at like the school, you know, right before everybody gets seated and then once everybody's seated, the doors are closed and the lights go down. It's dark. And we're all sitting there in darkness and all of a sudden on the stage, the spots come on and the actors come out and the first scene begins to unfold. And it's almost like as the sun, how, the sun goes out. And because the sun goes out, the moon goes out. And the stars are falling from heaven. And I imagine against that dark black background, the whole world sees Christ return. So if someone, if you think you missed it, you didn't. Because everybody's going to see it. It's going to be clearly obvious. Now, I did find this out. We'll talk about how people predict, you know, when Christ is coming back. Charles Taze Russell was the first uh, head or president of the Watchtower Society for the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he calculated that in 1874, that's when Christ was going to come back. Well, guess what? Christ didn't come back in 1874. He didn't come back at Y2K. He didn't come back when uh, Harold Camping predicted in 1994 or 2011. So what Charles Taze Wilson said was that uh, he proclaimed that Christ came back. It was just invisible. How convenient. And he continued to teach the, the invisible return of Christ and that Christ was invisibly reigning in his millennial kingdom on the earth just after that. Well, that's not what the Bible says about the second coming of Christ, that it will be not invisible, but his coming will be quite visible. Now again, could this happen in our lifetimes? Yes. I'll explain why in just a minute. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest parts of the earth to the farthest parts of heaven. So uh, if the church, you know, when Christ returns, if in fact the church is raptured, and we are, then when Christ comes back, who's he coming back with? Is he coming back by himself? What's he riding on? He's riding on a white horse. Read the book of Revelation. And who's he got with him? Ten thousands times ten thousands of his angels and his saints. So we're coming back. And guess what we're going to be coming on? Not a Humvee. Not a motorcycle. We're coming back on horses. One person that rides horses. Everybody else is going, I'm in trouble. (laughs) I don't know how to ride a horse. You're going to be stapled to your saddle. That's how he's going to. I still tell people, when I, I got saved, like, when I, you guys know, I was shoeing horses when I got saved, and uh, I was convinced that God saved me because he's going to need someone to shoe all those horses coming back, <laughs> because I know a lot of horseshoers, and a lot of them ain't saved. So uh, I'm definitely afraid of that assignment because I don't want to make Jesus' horse lame before he comes back. That could stall the things. No, I, I say that in jest. Um, but he's going to gather together those that have gotten saved during the tribulation time, the gospel will be being preached. People will be being saved during the tribulation time. The saints will be with him in heaven. We'll be coming back with him. And all everything gathered together there at that time at his second coming. 
Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near, at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So to emphasize his point, he gives his disciples the parable of the fig tree. And uh, some people think because the parable says uh, when the, the fig tree becomes tender, puts forth leaves, you know, summer is coming, and Israel is the, called a fig tree. So the uh, re-Zionist movement, people coming back to Israel, that was the indication of this happening. And so then that generation is going to see the second coming of Christ. So if 1948 was the rebirth of the nation of Israel, then that'd be 40 years, that'd be 1988. And you get these books that say 88 reasons why Christ is coming back in 1988 and didn't come. And then, well, maybe it was 67 that, the, that, that starts the clock, and maybe it's 40 years from 1967, and that's 2007, and it didn't happen then. And I apologize if my math is wrong, but I'm just kind of flying through this. Uh, so I don't think that, that that application is valid here for the parable of the fig tree. I think what Jesus is saying is there are certain things that you can count on in nature that mark the inevitable coming of something else. When the trees start to blossom, and they're going to start today, I think. I mean, it's going to be like in the 60s today, and we're going to see the, the trees start to blossom, and things start to really spring up right now. And that means we can count on 100-degree temperatures in July. Because it's coming. It's inevitable. That calendar is set by it. And you can, even if you didn't have a calendar, you would know when summer was coming. One reason you'd know is because the plants would start to tell you. And you'd know that there's a period of time uh, that, that in which that happens. So he's saying, look, learn this from the fig tree. Just like the fig tree, when you see these signs start to happen, know that Christ is coming. He's so near, he's at the door. I mean, just about to open the door and enter into the, into the human world again. And it is interesting that uh, verse 30, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by, by no means pass away till all these things have taken place. What generation is he talking about? Obviously he wasn't talking about the disciples' generation because they all passed away. People go, well, see, I knew the Bible was wrong. No, no, no. This generation, meaning the generation that sees these things happening, will see Christ come back. Why? Because it's going to be a period of seven years. That generation that sees the fig tree blossom, that sees these events happening, will be there. Because once that labor starts, nothing can stop it. It's going to finish, and it's going to be a short period of time, seven years. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. Isn't that comforting? That if God said it, you can take it to the bank. I mean, that's why in my life personally, in our lives congregationally, that's why we spend large amounts of time not talking about the fishing trips I went on or the football games I like to watch. And I don't even watch football. But that's why we spend our time where? Going through the word of God. Because I don't know what else you could build your life on. I mean, if it's true that all these things are going to be shaken, where else can you find a stable place? Now listen, think about it. Where else can you find a stable place to build your life, to, to root your identity? We live in a world filled with people trying to find a place to root their identity. For some reason, our identity likes to be linked and attached to something. That's why you name drop. If you're a nobody, you've got to find a somebody to link yourself to so you can be a somebody through them. That's identity issues. I chose to link my identity to Christ. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. But, but you know, if it's not, well, I know so-and-so, and I was, went to school with, and I grew up with, and I, I have friendships with, you know, and you try to drop some fancy name so people go, ooh, really? You must be somebody because they did something great and you're riding on their coattails. Or you must be somebody because of the, the labels on your clothes or the kind of car you drive or I'm not knocking your clothes or your car, but don't build your identity on those. Why? Because they're all going to end up in the garbage. Drive by the coiners, you know, the, the scrap metal yard, and you'll see all the fancy cars people try to find their identity in. It just became garbage and junk. Go to the landfill. And guess what? If you find your identity in junk, guess what you're going to be? Junk. And God doesn't make junk. But if you link yourself to him, you'll find uh, that eternal identity in Christ. 
That's why so much time in the Word of God. Invest yourself. Now, I've got just a couple of minutes. I want to finish this out because Kishore's coming next week, and I want to make sure we get through this. Can you hang with me just a few more minutes? Yes. Yes. Say amen. amen. All right. But verse 32. Of that day and hour, no one knows. Now, I, th- I thought you said that it was three and a half years from that middle point. Yes, it is. So why don't they know? I don't know. They should know. Maybe it's because, you know, it says you don't know the day or the hour. Maybe it's because just like the birth, you kind of know nine months from the pregnancy, but when did, or when the conception really happened, you know, we don't know exactly when it happened, the minute, the second. Uh, so we can't really tell exactly when the baby's coming. We know approximately, but we don't know exactly. That could be one reason. Another reason could be that their eyes are blinded to all of the clues and, and, and things that are being told. But of that day, no one knows, uh, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work, notice that, underline that, to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch or literally to stay alert. Watch, therefore, or stay alert, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, midnight, the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to who? All. That's us. He's not just saying it to them. He's saying it to us, too. What I say to you, I say to all, everyone, watch, stay alert. This, in the, in the story here, in the parable here, it's a brilliant example Because this master who owns a house, he's going away. You know the brilliant thing he doesn't do? Or he he does? He doesn't tell them when he's coming back. Now that's great. You know, moms and dads, you've seen the movies about, you know, you go on vacation, the kids throw a wild party while you're gone. You say, kids, you know, we're going away for the weekend. We'll be back Sunday night. Bad idea. Say, your mom and I, we're going away. We're coming back. But you don't know when. Oh, don't know when. Oh, man. Now I can't have the wild party or whatever because I don't know when you're coming back. But that's a beautiful example because it's the same example as the thief coming in the night. If you knew that a thief was coming to your house at 2 a.m., you'd, you know, go to bed at midnight or 11 o'clock or whenever after you get done on Facebook and watching YouTube videos. You'd hit the sack and you'd set your alarm for 1.30. 1.30, alarm goes off, you get up, you get your gun out, you load it, you get dressed, take a shower, whatever you need to do. And you're there, and you're, until 2 o'clock, you know, you start to hear scratching at the door of the windows, and, and the thief is there, and you knew it, and you were ready. So, but, but big deal, you knew he was coming. You'd be, you'd be a fool if you weren't ready when you knew he was coming, right? And when you knew what time he was coming. But the steward doesn't tell the workers when he's coming. So what does that mean? They have to be ready for him to come at any time minute. They have to live ready. They have to live alert. The workers have to be continually about doing the business of the owner of the farm or the owner of the estate. I mean, if I owned an estate and I told you, hey, I'm going to Nepal. I don't know when I'm coming back, but while we're away, can you watch the dogs? Can you pay the bills? Can you make sure the, you know, the animals get fed, the chickens get their grain and, you know, take care of the property for them, make sure the lights get st- stay on, the, the temperature's good. And, and if I left and said, okay, now watch it for me. And you said, yeah, sure, sure. You know, a year goes by, two years go by. I mean, I think he's dead. I think he's not coming back. He did go to Nepal, you know. Uh, some people were kind enough to remind me that there were just two airplane accidents this last week in Nepal. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. Uh, it's been 2,000 years, and a lot of people have gone to sleep. Well, we don't think he's really coming back. I don't even believe in the second coming anymore. Watch out, because that's exactly when he's going to come back, at the moment you're least expecting it. Well, what are we supposed to do? What does it mean to be alert? Read Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, the parable of the ten uh, virgins with lamp with oil in their lamps. We are supposed to be about the Father's business. But see, we tend to get about our own business. And when he comes back, what will he find? Will he find that we've purified ourselves? First John chapter 3. 
Will he find that we're not living for this world because we think this is all there is? Or will, we find, will he find us patiently and expectantly waiting for his return? You know, like a bride waiting for her groom to come and get her. She's dolled up, she's fancied up, she's looking her best going, I know he's coming, I know he's coming. And then there you wait. So that's what, that's what this is all about. The, the key takeaway from this for all of us is be busy about the Father's business. He could come at any time. If, if the rapture happens next week, it'll still be within a seven-year period, right? Seven years. Uh, uh, many of us could be alive. And I don't, some of the things in your life don't look anything like you've been waiting for Christ to come. You're living with one another, you know, and I'm, I'm not talking about families. You know what I'm talking about, right? People cohabitating instead of getting married, involved in sexual immorality, got stuff in the cabinets, and just involved in all kinds of ungodliness on top of caring so little about what Christ asked us to do in his absence. We're to be carrying out his business. So everything you do in your life, you have to ask yourself, Christ, is this what you would want me to do with what belongs to you? And yes, and if you answer that question, and you can live according to that, then you're ready. So if Christ comes back, he can come. As far as I'm concerned, come on back. Ready to go. Nothing I got to change. Nothing, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I live blamelessly. You can look in my cabinets. You can get on my computer. You know, I, there's no freedom like that. They're saying, honey, open up the computer. You can look at it whatever you want. Jesus, open up the computer. Look at what you want. So I'm going to invite Phil and the praise team to come up and, and we'll close. Um, again, I appreciate, I, I don't take liberty with my time uh, too often. Um, but I wanted to get through this whole passage before uh, I went away to Nepal, just in case I don't come back. One never knows. Maybe I'll get into ministry there or something. Who knows? But it's true, life's a vapor, isn't it? Maybe it's not uh, Christ coming back that to be concerned with. It's just your, it's you going to be with him. That can happen any day too, you know. And at my funeral, I don't want people to struggle for what to say. Or struggle with, well, was he really a Christian? You know, we're, we're not sure. At your funeral, are people going to go, yeah, you know what? There was so much evidence of his life, in his life, of his love for Christ. So much evidence in his life, of, or her life, of their faith. I, I can't answer that question for you. You have to answer that question. But today is the day of salvation, not looking off to some future time or future distant place. So if, if you're not saved, if, if you don't know the Lord, then today would be a great day to get saved. It's a beautiful spring day, a day that signifies new beginnings. So today could be a new beginning for you. And then you don't have to worry about all this stuff. You're with Christ, you're safe. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand.